The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent entitled The Birth of the Peacemaker. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 2, 33-35 and John 8, 2-11. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go in from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Well, typically, um, here at Sacred City Church, we preach exegetically, which means we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. And most recently, we have been in the book of 1 Peter, and, and we've been putting Peter on hold for a little bit um, through the season of Advent uh, to prepare our hearts in this season. Now, for the Christian, preparing for Advent is much more than just shopping, um, doing some baking, going to Christmas parties, and, and the such. Though that, all that stuff is a lot of fun, and we get to have a lot of fun doing that. Preparing our hearts for Christmas and in the Advent season is really more about making internal preparations. It's a matter of quieting your heart in the midst of a hustle and bustle season. It's intentionally creating space for remembrance, like looking back at the past and remembering that Christ has come while unapologetically dreaming about what the future will be like. Now, Advent, the season that we're in, is incomplete without both of these elements, Now, most people are inclined to do one or the other. Some of us are dreamers. We like to look forward. We can always envision a better day, while some of us are more inclined to look backwards to the good old days. We're plagued with nostalgia, and we're just longing for that time to go back. Now, with Advent, we need both, because only looking back leaves us in a place uh, of nostalgia with no hope or with no vision for the future. And without remembering the first coming, without looking back to when Jesus came over 2,000 years ago, the hope of the second coming is a baseless fantasy. Now the beauty of this is, in Advent season, as we hold these two things together, 
our dreams of a perfect world is guaranteed because Christ has already come. But only thinking in terms of past and future also can neglect the present. I think that's it's sort of the tension that we live in. We, I talked about this last week, the already but not yet. Christ has already come, but he has not completely fulfilled the kingdom here on earth. And so there's this internal tension, this moment in time right now, but we are not at a standstill. We're not just sitting around twiddling our thumbs passively. The spirit of Christ is at work right now. God is doing something in and through every single believer. And, and through the believers, God is unfolding his mission to make his name known, to make disciples who make disciples so the glory of Christ would spread from the ends of the earth. But the question is this. Do you actually believe that God is doing something right now? Right? If this is true, if God is constantly doing something in your life, that means your life is never static. Now, the happenings of our life might be pretty static. Maybe you have a steady job. Your life isn't a pretty constant routine. But God is always on the move. God is always working on you, in you and through you. You're a work in progress. He's trying to change your heart and your life to be more like Jesus. And as he does this work in you, is, is that's how he accomplishes work through you. It's in making you more like Jesus that he uses you as an ambassador. Now, part of preparing our hearts for, for Advent is not just looking back and, and looking forward, but it's, it's wondering, what is God up to right now? Now, for some of us, we're in a season where you're really in tune with this, right? Life is changing. It's crazy. It's maybe, maybe a completely new season, nothing you've experienced before. And you're like, God, what are you doing? I don't know what you're doing, but you're doing something. And some of us are, are in a pretty stable station in life, lot, not a lot of change. And, and maybe we're wondering, how is it possible that God's doing something, right? My life seems so boring, But whether you're in an ordinary season or if it's a season where big things are happening, God is at work. And when God is at work in your life, the primary thing he's doing is showing you what he is like. That's the goal of every event in your life, whether it's joy or hardship, he is trying to bring you face to face with himself. God is trying to show us what he's like, and the best place where we can see where God is like is in the face of Jesus. He's trying to bring us face to face with the real Jesus, not a, a neutered, Americanized version that panders to our desires, that plays into our comforts, that is a, a means to something greater. See, that, that Jesus that so many churches are preaching that so many Christians or, or, or supposed Christians are drawn to it is a construct of Satan, and, and he is escorting people right to the gates of hell. See, this fake Jesus 
offers you a self-indulging life of comfortability, of cheap grace, and of surface-level change. But God is wanting to bring you to face-to-face to the real Jesus. Now, how can you determine between the two, a, a, a pretend Jesus and the real Jesus? Well, here's what it feels like. It feels like being wrapped up in a big bear hug while simultaneously getting your toes stepped on. It's it's this incredibly euphoric feeling of of just being overwhelmed by the embrace of true love, just as you are. No no change is necessary to, to receive this love. You're just, boom, swallowed up in it. But at the same time, it feels like you're You're being confronted. Your toes are being stepped on a little bit here. Because Jesus, while he loves you so tremendously, he loves you too much to let you stay the way that you are. His love has an agenda. His love is meant to change you. And so in some ways, he he confronts us. He confronts us in, in the realities that we live in. The real Jesus says to us, I love you exactly the way you are, but because I love you, I'm gonna change you for the better. Now, this is exactly what happens with the woman who's found in our passage today. She's going to meet the real Jesus. And what she experienced is this, this this feeling of embrace, yet her toes are stepped on in a way. There's this confrontation. Now, this is really what our Advent series is sort of uh, framed up to do for us. The birth of the peacemaker, right? This this series is meant for us to sort of lean into the tension that Jesus does come to bring peace, but before Jesus brings peace, he brings confrontation. He causes a disruption in our lives. Now, this is not a a temper tantrum, right? I've got a three-year-old, and we go through Target or any store or whatever, you know, and and you, you know what the disruption's like. This is not like that. This is a disruption that is measured, intentional. And has a, has a goal at the end. See, Jesus causes a disruption that is meant to address and expose the thoughts of our heart. And on the other side of this disruption, when he exposes what's in our heart, it is then when he offers a peace that surpasses all understanding. So that's where we're gonna, what we're going to see today. So if you would open up to John chapter 8. Um, There are our pew Bibles in front of you. That's on page, let's see, 521. As you're flipping there, um, you'll probably realize at the beginning of John chapter 8, there are some brackets. Um, And so let me just speak about this quickly. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include um, chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verses 11. Now, while... Scholars disagree on where exactly this passage should land, specifically whose gospel account this should fall in. Some scholars think that this, this was John writing, some think that it was Luke, but regardless of where they believe it should fall, especially where it falls in the gospels, scholars unanimous, unanimously agree that this passage is in fact an eyewitness account of what Jesus did. And so don't let those brackets scare you. Because in this story, there's something so profound, something so life-changing that whoever saw it was like, this has to be accounted for. 
This has to be included in, in scriptures. And you'll see why here. So let me set up this story here. Because when we jump right into the middle of the book, it's hard to know what exactly is going on. So let me set it up. Jesus, at this point in time, has been growing in popularity. He's in his 30s at this point, uh, early 30s. He's growing in popularity. Um, He's teaching unlike any teacher before him. He's saying and doing things that no other prophet, no other teacher had done before. His miracles that he's doing are are jaw-dropping. What he's saying, what he's teaching about is, is... Never been heard of before. He walks on water. He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And then he says that he himself is the bread of life. Now, as Jesus is teaching and he's, he's doing these miracles, the centerpiece of his message is, is that God has mercy for sinners. Right? There's this famous passage in John 3, 16, for God So love the world that he gave his only son. This is a a message of redemption and and rescue. Now as Jesus proclaimed this message, as he did these these tremendous miracles and and, and gave these signs and wonders, he had a polarizing effect on people, like like magnets do, right? There's a positive and a a negative and a magnet. So that that, uh, if positive is drawn to a negative, people are attracted to Jesus, but at the same time, if you take a positive end of a magnet and put it to another positive end of a magnet, it repels each other. Now, Jesus had a polarizing effect like this. And as we saw in our reading from Luke chapter 2, uh, Simeon, who is a prophet, said that, that Jesus would have this effect on people, that he would be responsible for the rising and falling of many in Israel. That some people would see what Jesus did and they would be opposed to him as a person. Some were drawn in, and others were were repulsed by it. Now, this is one thing that Luke, uh, in his passage there, is making perfectly clear, that there is no such thing as a neutral response to Jesus, to the real Jesus. Now, people can meet a fake Jesus, a counterfeit Jesus, and say, yeah, I can take him or leave him. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with him. I'm neutral about it. But when you meet the real Jesus, you'll literally be drawn to him or you'll reject him. And if you look at chapter 7 in John's gospel, you can see that because Jesus' claims are too significant to overlook. Where some people are absolutely offended by him, where they are set out to kill him. That's their agenda. This Jesus guy, I don't just like, dislike him, I want to see him dead. While others on the other end of the spectrum, they're drawn to him. It's like, who is this? I have to get more. And leading this pack of Jesus' opponents were the religious leaders of that time, the scribes and the Pharisees. And and Jesus was very confrontational towards these people. Now, Jesus condemned all kinds of sin, but the sin that he was most outspoken about was the hypocrisy, the vanity, the religion that was void of the heart of God that was manifest in these religious people. It was so much so, like I said, that by John chapter 5, five chapters into John's account, these people want Jesus dead. Now, this is precisely why our story in John chapter 8 happens. This exposes the desperation and the revile the religious leaders had for Jesus and their intent to dismiss him. Now, what we are about to see in this 
in this chapter here is so improbable. The scenario is so improbable with the adulterous woman that scholars say that the only explanation is that this is a setup. And I'll tell you why in a minute, but let's start reading. Let's start with um, John 8, verse 2. It says, Early in the morning, he, that's Jesus, came again to the temple. And all the people came to him. You see this polarizing effect here in a moment. All these people are drawn to Jesus. They came to him and they sat down and he taught them. And now we see the people who are opposed to Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst of him, he said to them, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. What do you say? The law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. What? Do you say? Now, let me fill you in on, on the law of Moses here, because there's a little bit of backstory that goes on. Um, the law of Moses, when, when we think of that, we instantly think of the, the Ten Commandments. Um, and the seventh commandment that, that Moses gave, uh, and there's a whole slew of other commandments that came in the Mosaic era, but the seventh commandment specifically said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, any sexual interaction that happens outside of the context of a heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage is considered adultery. Because anything less than that points to an inaccurate picture of the kind of love that God intends for marriage to demonstrate, which is ultimately meant to point to what God is like. Now, if there's any commandment that today's modern man or modern woman is most vocally opposed to, it is this one. Because of the sexual revolution that happened in the 1960s, we have become a highly sexualized culture. And because of the technical revolution that we're still in the midst of, this idolatry, this sort of sin has never become more accessible and easy to, to be a part of. So when you combine these two things, I would go as far to say that, that adultery has become culturally acceptable for us. Now in Bible times, adultery was just as prominent as it is today. Don't make, back then, they weren't a bunch of Puritans that were all straight-laced shooters. These people were just as plagued with the sins of sexual nature, and we are today. They just had to go about it a different way. And back in those times, though it was running rampant, it was less culturally acceptable. It was viewed as shameful. It would be a secret thing that was meant to be hidden. And the reason for this is because the stakes are so high. That if you were to get caught in adultery, the penalty you would face would be the death penalty. See, this is what the the religious leaders are alluding to here in verse 5, right? This is the law of Moses, that we should stone this woman. But, But in order to stone this woman, there's a few more things that have to line up for the death penalty to actually be an option here. The first thing is that the ones caught in adultery needed to be caught in the act, Right? Not just in a compromised position, not just in an appropriate scenario. They had to be caught in the act of adultery. And they had to be caught, both of them, by two eyewitnesses. Now, two eyewitnesses that are not 
emotionally or relationally connected to either of the adulterers. And these two eyewitnesses need to have an account that lines up perfectly. Now, there, there is uh, an account uh, of a trial that happened in the first century uh, of a woman who was caught, well, a woman and a man who were caught in adultery, and, and there were two eyewitnesses, um, two people who were unbiased to the situation, who could actually be valid eyewitnesses, but the, the, the case was dismissed because the two eyewitnesses could not agree on what fruit was on the tree. Right? So the eyewitness account has to perfectly line up. Now, all of these stipulations make it incredibly hard for a death sentence to be executed if someone's caught in adultery. Right? So much so that, that historians and scholars say that, that if a death sentence for adultery happened more than once every seven years it, within a community, that community was considered to be a bloodhouse. It was so uncommon because the, the scenario had to stack up just right. It was nearly impossible, which is why this appears to be a 100% heartless setup orchestrated by these religious leaders. Now, here's my question. Both people have to be tried. Both people committing adultery have to be put on trial together. Where's the man? He's not mentioned. He's not present. Without the man present, there is no trial. But instead, these religious leaders take this woman and they parade her through the temple, humiliating her. See, if they actually do have two unbiased witness uh, accounts catching them in the act, this means that they had to have known about it. Now, rather than correcting and restoring this, these two people, right, confronting their sin and restoring them with grace, they would rather exploit them and heap judgment on top of them. And so here it is that the, the thoughts uh, of the heart are revealed about these religious leaders. In fact, verse 6 speaks right to it. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. See, this whole thing, it's not about this couple who's caught in an affair. This whole thing is a setup to trap Jesus. They are so corrupt that they're willing to ruin this woman's life just to get at Jesus. It is so heartless. Now, even today, religious people who are focused on keeping the rules tend to be characterized by this. These, these people are grumpy old sticklers who are hypocritical about everything, everyone. They care more about their beloved rules than they care about people. Now, these are the people who tend to be most offended by Jesus. And here's why. Because they are blind to their need for him. The religious leaders are trying to expose Jesus as a phony, to find a contradiction between his orthodoxy, what he's teaching, and his orthopraxy, the way that he executes his doctrine. Here's the, here's the hang-up. He will either offer swift judgment that upholds the law and contradicts his message of mercy and grace. And in doing so, if he acts in judgment, 
his ministry would be dis- dismantled. It'll be, it'll be dismissed. Because it's no longer this grace, this love of God that forgives sinners. It's this hard judgment. Now, or the other end is, is if he were to just offer grace to this woman, forsaking the law of Moses, letting her off the hook for her sins scot-free, that would also discredit his ministry because he would be contradicting Jewish tradition. Right? None of the Jews in that time would be drawn to Jesus because obviously he's, he's a false teacher. They're trying to catch him in a trap. Now you would think that Jesus would be a little bit nervous about this interaction, right? Knowing that people are out to expose him, trying to ruin him, trying to, trying to humiliate him. But Jesus is unthreatened by this. It, it doesn't even face him. In fact, Jesus gets down on his knees and he starts doodling in the dirt. Look at verse 6, the second part of verse 6. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, nobody knows exactly what Jesus is writing, but the act of doodling, whatever he's writing, reveals that he's calm, he's cool, he's collected, that, that he's, he's not shooken up by this at all. In fact, this detail that's included in, in, in this account is tremendous support for, for the validity of an eyewitness account. You see, if this were fantasy, if this were a made-up story, they would not include meaningless details like this. And so it's like details like this throughout all of the Gospels that really don't support the story in any way, shape, or form that actually help support the account, the validity of an eyewitness account. But listen, as the religious leaders come with this charge against Jesus, as they're trying to find him and find this loophole in what he's teaching and what he's doing, they're actually onto something about Jesus. They're, they're, they recognize the tension of Jesus' ministry. He comes speaking as a prophet did, building upon the foundation that the prophets of old laid. Like he has a familiar message, yet there's something striking about it. The demeanor that he has is not like a prophet. He, he carries this unbelievable poise, this authority, this certainty, yet while being compassionate and gentle, with everyone that he comes in contact with, right? This is kind of a giant question mark. It's a mystery for the people. They don't understand what's going on. And really, when you boil it down here, in this scenario, the big question mark about Jesus is this. Is he just or is he merciful? Which one is it? Is it wrath or is it grace? Now, you can see the tension here because it seems like these two things shouldn't go together. At least not at the same time. Now, let me illustrate this. I don't know how many of you play video games. Uh, I tend to play video games every now and then. Uh, I really love football, and so really the only game that I play is football. Um, Sometimes I just can't get enough football in my life that uh, I'll be watching football on my phone while playing Madden on my TV. You just got to get it, you know? And, And if you've ever played... Um, if you've ever played Madden or, or any sport game, there, there's this mode of playing. It's called career mode. And basically, you select a player, and, and you basically ride this player throughout his whole career. And so 
from the very beginning, you set up this player, you assign to him attributes, his height, his weight, his talents, his abilities. Uh, you can make his name up, where he's from, all this stuff. You, know, you, you tailor this guy. But as you're making this character, uh, the, you're constructing this athlete, whatever you assign to him, his attributes, will limit other attributes. For example, if you make this guy 6'4", 285 pounds, there's a limit to how fast he can be, right? A guy who's like 5'11", uh, 220 pounds is going to be a lot faster than a big like, like this. So there's a sense where with size, uh, your speed and ability decreases, your agility decreases. Now, I think in a lot of ways, we, we think that way when it comes to justice and mercy in real-life characteristics, Right, that, that's on justice and mercy are two ends of a spectrum, that, that we slide from one end to the other, right? That if you want to be just, you have to compromise mercy. If you want to be merciful, you have to compromise justice. With our human limitations, there is this sort of sliding scale. Right? If you value mercy, then you will inevitably, in some ways, devalue justice to some degree. Now, if you look at the religious people in our story and the adulterous woman, you can imagine their leanings. The, this, this woman is probably hoping that she'll just get a bit of mercy, right? Even if, even if she's not completely let off the hook, maybe it's not the death penalty this time. Maybe she just gets a little mercy. She's leaning in that direction. That's what she's hoping for, where as the religious people, they're on the side of justice, they want to see the hammer come down. This woman needs to be punished. See, but Jesus isn't that way. Jesus is not 50-50. It's not like he's, he's in the middle of the spectrum, 50-50, half and half. He doesn't compromise justice for mercy or mercy for justice. Jesus is 100% merciful and 100% just without contradiction. There is no one in this world who is more just than Jesus. There is no one in this world who is more merciful than Jesus. Jesus is capable of doing something that a mere human is not capable of doing themselves. Why? Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. There is a dual nature to Jesus here. This is the glory of the incarnation that we celebrate in Advent. That Jesus, the God-man, has come and put on flesh. That he has embodied perfection. We're humans, we range, and we're imperfective. We're imperfect, not perfectly just or not perfectly merciful. Jesus was perfect in both. And because of this dual nature, because he's 100% just, 100% merciful, his response to the religious leaders is nothing like that was anticipated. Take a look at verse 7. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down, and he wrote on the ground. See, Jesus, right here, he upholds the law. He says, according to this law, this woman ought to die. She does deserve death. 
Right? If she has truly been caught in her sin, if all the stipulations have been made, which, which are actually quite unlikely, then she does, in fact, deserve the death penalty. Jesus doesn't back down from the law. He doesn't compromise it. The law is still upheld. In fact, what he says is, is, is being even truer and more right to the law than these religious leaders was because he says, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. Now let me clear this up because this is one of those sayings that people rip from the Bible, detach it from its original meaning, and use it in manipulative ways. Now this does not mean that you must be 100% moral in order to condemn or to correct sin. Nor does it mean that immorality no longer matters. Right? This, is, this is one of the ways that modern people try to discredit the Christian religion. See, if that were the case, all traditional parenting, all social disciplines and practices would be thrown out the window. Parents, being the sinners that they are, would lose all credibility in confronting the sin of their children. And that's true of the law, the government. That's true of any sort of social structure. The leadership would have no authority. And if morality no longer mattered to Jesus, then Jesus would not have made his disciples fit for ministry. He would not have called them into that. He would have said, he would have come, he would have died, and he said, you know what, guys, I've done everything, so just go on living the way that you have been living. But he didn't do that. Jesus came with a mission, and he passed that mission on to his followers. He said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. See, morality, obedience matters to Jesus. What happens here? Jesus does a Jesus juke on the religious people. See, they think that these religious people, the religious people think they're right. They think they finally got Jesus trapped in a corner. He's going to finally be exposed as a phony. And Jesus says, actually, you're wrong. He says, okay, let's hold up the law, but let, let the one who's without sin throw the first stone. Now, what's Jesus doing here? Just as Simeon prophesied in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is revealing the thoughts of the heart of these religious people. He's revealing that they aren't so different from this adulteress. Their sin might look different, but they're just as guilty. Now, I have a deep love for the Scripture, and I also despise it a little bit because in revealing the hearts of these people in our story, our hearts as the readers are also revealed. And we tend to imagine how we fit in, in, in scenarios like this, like in stories. And my son does this with cartoons, right? I'm Catboy. He probably doesn't mean anything to you if you don't have preschoolers. But, you know, he watches this TV show and he's like, I've got to be one of these characters. We do the same thing with, with a lot of stories. You go to superhero stories, like, I want to be Superman or whatever. But we do this when we read the scriptures as well, right? Who am I in the story? Now, most of us, when we come to this story... 
Like, I don't really see myself in the story. Maybe I'm an onlooker. Maybe I'm, I'm part of the crowd that's off to the side somewhere watching from the dif- distance. We don't really find ourselves in line with any of these characters. Now, in this story, the author only names three parties, right? The crowd, he, he ref- refers to something in the midst, and, and maybe there's a crowd around. And even if there is a crowd, they, they would be just as complicit with this whole ordeal that the Pharisees and the scribes are bringing forth to Jesus. They're they're sort of in the same boat as them anyway. But the author only reveals three people, three groups of people in the story. There's the religious people, there's the adulterous woman, and there's Jesus. And I'll I'll spare you the time. You're not Jesus, so that's not him. That's not who you line up with in this story. And if you think you're Jesus, you need to be in a community so someone can tell you you're not Jesus. Now, some of us can totally see ourselves as the adulterous woman. Maybe maybe you've actually been unfaithful. Maybe you you just have an awareness of your sin. And maybe maybe it's not sexual, but you know your sin, whatever, whatever form it takes, it's just as gross. Right, if this is you, you feel like you've been found out. You feel like you've been exposed. And right now you're probably just like, man, I just need some good news. I need some mercy. I really hope people don't throw a stone at me. Your heart has been exposed in that capacity. Your sin, it's messed you up. Just long for that mercy. But there's others of us who, who maybe are more willing to bring down the hammer of judgment on others. You have this, these people have to pay for what they've done mentality, right? Got to make them learn their lesson, This punishment suits them right. Now, if this is you, you have a lot in common with these religious leaders. You're probably arrogant, self-righteous, proud, insecure, really. And it's so hard for people to actually admit that you're a lot like these religious leaders. So hard. People will spend their whole life denying it. People, I mean, people who are in church spend their whole life denying it because it's so hard to come to grips with this because, it, in a way, it's like being found out. It's like your heart being laid out open. Now, if you go through the gospel accounts where Jesus is speaking to people, Jesus always has the hardest, most severe words for oblivious, self-righteous people. People who hide their insecurities in a godless, heartless religion. These are the people who think they are in with God. They show up on Sunday mornings. They're probably serving in church somehow. But their hearts are so cold and so far from God. This is what the religious leaders were like. They had the external appearances. They found themselves in the temple every day. They were doing a bunch of churchy stuff. But in the end, their hearts are far from God. 
Now, there's at least some self-realization here with the religious leaders because Jesus says, let the one who's without sin throw the first stone. And as you see here in verse 9 through 10, nobody's going to throw a stone. It says, but when they heard it, when they heard Jesus said, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now it's interesting here that the older ones leave first. Scholars say it's because the older ones are wiser. And I would agree with that. And so I just want to take this opportunity as a bit of a sidebar. This church... If you're older, if you're in, in the age bracket where your children are no longer living with you, this church needs you. We need your wisdom. We need your example. If you love Jesus and if you want to be part of his family and what he's doing and moving the mission forward here in the Quad Cities and beyond, we want you to be with us. And being with us isn't just coming with us on Sunday mornings. It's hard to know somebody one hour a week or an hour and a half a week. We want to know you. We want to do life with you. We want to invite you into our homes. We want to open up our hearts and our life to you. We want to learn from your wisdom. We want to learn from your experience. We want to know what it looks like to, to, to last the long haul with Jesus. And so we need you. And so I want to invite you into a missional community, not just to join us in worship on Sundays, though we're so glad you're here on Sunday mornings, but we want to invite you to be part of our lives as a church. That's the end of the sidebar. Back to the religious leaders. In self-realization, they drop their stones, they walk away one by one. Their hearts are exposed. These people stand condemned themselves, right? What they're saying is we are sinners, that none of us are capable of throwing the first stone because we ourselves are plagued with sin. Their ugly had seeped through. So these Pharisees, scribes, they tuck their tail between their legs and they leave till it's only the man, or the only Jesus and the woman left standing there. Now, the interesting thing here is that Jesus is the only one who is qualified to heave a stone at this woman. But instead of throwing a stone, Jesus offers her his radical mercy. Look at verse 10 again. Jesus stood up to her and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now, by no means does Jesus reduce her guilt. She certainly deserves the punishment. She is an adulterer. He does not say, just cover that up. Pretend like it didn't happen. Jesus admits, or Jesus, Jesus confronts her sin. But, but in having her sin confronted, it ultimately brings her to a place where Jesus wants her to be, and that's at a place where she realizes that she needs mercy. And Jesus freely gives it to her. And here's what happens. When you have received mercy from the real Jesus, it messes you up. It messes your life up for the better. 
See, first Jesus offers you mercy, and that mercy changes you from the inside out. Jesus says to her, go. I, I, don't, I don't condemn you in your sin. Go and sin no more. See, when you experience this, change happens not out of obligation, but out of delight. Now, this doesn't mean that she goes and she never sins again. This woman's going to sin again. Maybe in a different way. Maybe she ends up in somebody else's bed at some point. But there is the inworking of the Holy Spirit in her life that is convicting her of sin, that is calling her to a better path, a path that leads to life to the fullest. Her appetite for sin is waning, and it is giving way to a new love for God and for his mercy that changes her. Now, this woman gets a happy ending. Right, she walks away, she's not going to go to the stake. She's not going to get thrown, uh, stones thrown at her today. But the religious squad, the religious leaders, they feel condemnation and they walk away. Right, in a sense, there's no happy ending for them. This is, this is a big mistake that religious people, once confronted by the ickiness in their heart, often make. They get offended and they walk away from Jesus. And this is the biggest mistake anyone could make, where they go away and they double down on their religious mentality. I've got to do better. I've got to try harder. But better is never good enough for a perfectly righteous and just God. Even the most moral and upright of people will always stand condemned at the feet of God because there's no way to be perfect like him. Now, if these religious leaders would have stayed, Jesus would have spoken the same words that he spoke over this woman to them. They would have said, Jesus would have offered them this, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Put your self-righteousness behind you. Walk away from that empty life. See, the same mercy that Jesus has for adulterers is the mercy that Jesus offers for the self-righteous. And so if you're feeling convicted this morning of your self-righteousness, there is grace for you. Don't walk away from Jesus. Jesus is disrupting your life in order to bring you a peace that religion and doing the rules and living life to some sort of standard that's in, impossible to attain. He's offering you a peace that is way better than any of that can offer you. But here, let me just finish with this, this last question. How could Jesus do this? How could Jesus say to this woman, I don't condemn you, go ahead and go, go sin no more. How could, how could he say that? How could he say that and not compromise on justice, right? It looks like he's letting her off the hook, but here's, here's why. Because the day was coming where Jesus would be condemned for the sins of the religious and the irreligious. Where Jesus would offer his own life to take the blow of God's wrath. Where Jesus would be struck for the sins of others. A perfect man would give his life to save adulterers and the self-righteous, to give these people real, true life. 
to confront their life of sin and their anxieties, right? This, this, this anxiety of, am I ever going to be found out, right? That, that's what both of these, the adulterous woman and the religious people have in common. Am I going to be found out? Am I, is my heart going to be exposed? And here's what Jesus does. Jesus solves that fear by saying, I'm going to expose your heart. I'm going to show you the ickiness that's in your heart, the sin that has plagued everything in your life, and I'm going to love you like no one's ever loved you before. So much that I cannot let you stay the way that you are. That disruption that Jesus offers is so sweet because it ultimately leads leads us to the peace that cannot be brought about by any other means. In Psalm 85, the psalmist talks about in God's salvation... When God delivers his people, there will be a kiss of righteousness and peace. This sort of mingling of these two things without compromising of the other. This sort of mingling of, of justice and of mercy. And here in the person and work of Jesus, we see justice and mercy perfectly upheld. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is the answer for the problem of the sin in our hearts. And God has made a way. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for how gracious he was, but also for not stepping away or or downplaying the law that he was perfect in justice and in mercy. I'm thankful that you are still in the business of right now, in this very day, confronting sinners, whether religious sin or irreligious sin, to bring us face to face with you. So thankful, Father, that you have provided a mercy that is beyond adequate, a, a grace upon grace upon grace. As we come to the table today, Father, would you, would you help us to lay hold of the grace of Christ. To know that right here at this table is where we celebrate the mingling of justice and mercy without compromise. Where Jesus was slain for our sins so that we could be mended and made whole. We thank you, Father, that you are present with us now, that the Spirit of Christ, that Jesus himself is here with his people working in us, working through us. Help us to be sent out again as missionaries, proclaiming the excellencies of who called us from darkness into light. We thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.